Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we're recording. All right, Mr. Molesky, I'm kicking it over to you. You motherfucker. Like, <laughs> we clearly designated you to kick this off. Right, that's that's how you kick it off all the time, so I'm just throwing it back at okay, you. Okay, I see what you meant there. All right. So, well, welcome back with, with Sunder Boobles and I. Um, so, uh, we we didn't quite get as much time as we had wanted last time to, to jump down into a, a few additional topics. So, what we were thinking about was um, our failures as coaches. And I think Boobles and I, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but I think, you know, just jumping right into it, like one of the biggest failures that I think about um, not just having thinking back, like, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. One of the, the failures I think about during my time as an actual agile coach, one is that stupid title of agile coach. I really think it's one of the dumbest roles that we've got right now. Um, just cause I, I don't think it's well understood what that is. Um, but more importantly, like my functionality as a, a coach was not meeting people where they were at on their journey of whatever they were working on um, and not understanding the diversity of the tool set that you have. Like there's a time and a place to sit back and allow a person to come to their own solution. There's a time and a place to tell the person what the solution should be. Um, and there's a time and place for for something, I think, a little bit more in between there and really just mm. really not appreciating that spectrum of meeting that that the customer essentially where they're at in that journey and what they actually need help with. What do you guys think? How did you get to that conclusion? Like, what was the point that you figured maybe I'm not delivering the value that I envisioned myself to do? So this this is probably top of mind for me recently, just because, like one of the the past uh, engagements that I was on, you know, listening to the Scrum Masters there. And one, I did not understand what the fuck they were doing. Like on a daily basis, I have no idea why that team even had scrum masters to begin with. Um, sitting in meetings where from the product side, I would be talking about things with another product manager with the engineering team and a scrum master there. Um, and the, the questions that were coming out of the scrum masters were like, how do we do that? Like, how do we, how do we find out what the customer needs? And it's like, where where did you, what do you think the job description of a scrum master is that you would be asking that type of question instead of leading and helping coach your product owner in getting to that point um so anyway i'm i'm rambling a little bit here but like my my cynicism comes from the perspective that i feel like and i've got this blog article ready to go but like the scrum master is the most wor most worthless job in america right now like it is so uh is that, piss poor is that done. because is it because uh the misinterpreted stances that we have like in our PSM2 right i think that's what the job descriptions almost all say you know they talk about the scribe the jira admin the uh doing things for the team protecting the team uh making decisions for the team when they can't make them you know helping them solve problems removing any and all impediments and that's really becomes a crutch right like this and they talk even about knowing scrum by the scrum guide or stuff like that the scrum police right so i think it has a lot to do with that i and it's just a glorified project manager what, what i would argue with that though boobles is there is a time and a place for that scrum master i i don't even think those are necessarily anti-patterns I think, okay, there is a time and place where this team has gotten fucked up so many times that I need to protect them at this point, all right? They have gotten the rug pulled out from under them, constantly changed direction. There's churn to the ninth degree. Like, okay, at a certain point, enough is enough, and somebody needs to step in and deflect us to a certain degree and help get these team members. Like, we were talking about psychological safety last time. Like, there's a time and a place to be a defensive scrum master. So I'm not even going to say that that's, a, that's an anti-pattern. Where I'm going is that is just one tool in your toolbox that is required to understand the time and the place to use. To what I think you were getting at was like, you can't be a one-trick pony. And this is what I do all the time, every time. 
Um, But I do feel like a lot of those things that you just talked about, like there is a time and place for that. If nobody else on the team knows Jira and nobody else knows how to update tickets, okay, well, great. Maybe that's sprint two and three. I start talking about coaching and mentoring, but sprint one, fuck it. Somebody's got to do it. So I'll do it. Like, I I just feel like that, that need to actually get shit done is absent somewhere. Yeah. And I think those are the things that we want to, they may need to be done at a time, but not forever. So there's a lot of scrum masters out there that that's all they do for years. And they spend 99% of their time at the team level. They spend zero time at the product level and zero time coaching the organization. And when that happens, I think we optimize at a very local level. And then there's very little value because guess what? If you don't change the system, good luck changing anything else. Like you're running your head into the same exact problems over and over and over again. How many people do you get in your PSM courses that supposedly have years and years of experience then go away after those two days? Like, I never knew I was supposed to do this. Organizations limit their scrum masters to only operate in their single mold of this is your scrum team and stick with them instead of Hey, you got to w- work with the entire organization. Maybe do some stakeholder engagement as well. If the product owner is not uh, doing that vividly enough, work with management, uh, ensure that leadership sets the right environment. They're just forced by the organization to work just with the developers and then a little bit of the product owner. So I, I would take yeah. it one step even further than that, Sunder. Is it, and it's like this was literally on top of mind this morning. Like, that same scenario plays out for your product managers as well. And I, I, in, to, to me, like looking at the vast difference between um, what a, a stereotypical product owner is and a product manager. Um, and I think Safe is a great example of this. Like if you're a product owner in Safe, you're more like a backlog manager. Um, you are not strategically defining direction. You have little to no ownership of your product, quote unquote, um, and like, whatever, if that's helping the organization move forward, this isn't a shit on safe. Cause that's, that's just like punching down. But, um, <laughs> I think it's the same thing for the scrum master in, in a safe environment where like, we would aspire Jeff to what you were just talking about. Okay. We've got a scrum master who's used to working down here at the team level working. Maybe, maybe they build out a little bit horizontally. So they're working with two or three different team members or two different delivery teams, but they're generally not going up in the organization. They're not, you know, growing in any of those other aspects. Same thing with the product owner. The product owner is really just a team level backlog manager, um, Versus doing anything strategic like, okay, are we figuring out a value proposition canvas, figuring out the pain points of our customers, figuring out market placement and strategy? Like, what is our go-to-market plan for this product? What's the marketing campaign that we're going to be doing, right? Like, a a product owner is very rarely going to be part of those conversations or even thinking about that in these limited environments that we're talking about. Um, But But bringing that back to your initial point, bringing that to your back to your initial point of meeting them where they're at. It's good to create that baseline. And this is where this is where we're supposed to be. This is where we want to go. This is where we're currently at. Uh, but how often do you get the opportunity to set such an um, environment? Let's put it like that. Or ask these kind of questions. Like, where do we want to go? And what do we want to achieve with this whole agile mindset? And what do we need to do first? I think it's a lot like a family. You don't get a great family. You have to build a great family. Oh, I like it takes that. a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And I think that's what your job is as a scrum master. You got to build a good environment for scrum and you have to educate a lot of people. You got to mentor people. You got to teach people like it's hard, hard work. It's not going to be glorified. It's going to be behind the scenes. There's no, not many people are going to recognize it, but a lot of people are going to have a better life because of it. And that's, and I think that's, that's something worth doing. I don't know that there's that there's not a lot of great professional scrum masters and some of the, I guess the organizations that hire me, they usually have a problem. And so then they, they're, they're spending a lot of time at the team level. They don't know what they don't know. And a lot of them are hungry and they want us to do better, but they don't know how. And and that's where I think they need help. And I think the things we're doing from our classroom as change agents, those are the things um, that we can help. And I use this, I was working with Chad, the, uh, yeah, I think she was yesterday and we were talking with some scrum masters and we use this analogy with them. You know, like a chain chain is kind of like a bolt rocker. And that's like one of the stances maybe you need to have as a scrum master. And this was probably one of my failures early on in my career. 
I felt like I couldn't but rock the boat too much. And so you should feel that pit in the stomach, like when you're on a canoe and you're standing up and you're like wobbling and stuff like that, like you're going to fall. Like that's a good feeling as a scrum master. Like you should be on the edge and sometimes it's, you're going to tip. That's okay. But I guess that's how you move the environments forward. If you're just always doing the same thing, you're probably not going to see a lot of growth inside the organization. You know, I think it's a lot like, uh, you know, your muscles, right? Like if you don't ever uh, test them, if you don't ever strain them, they're not going to have the chance to repair and grow and get bigger or stronger or do more reps or whatever you want them to do. And so I think an organization is very similar to that. And uh, we're there to stress it. Organizations (laughs) tend to be reluctant to that pain. You know, the changing pains, they got to feel some of the pain, but they don't want to feel too much of the pain, whereas they're looking for the next silver bullet that the one size fits all approach like we've implemented scrum and all of a sudden we have all these issues no the issues have always been there but jeff just made them very transparent now you got to deal with them right so i guess the 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 pushback though i want to give um to to boobles what you were just saying was (sighs) i had mentioned size of organizations previously and um, I think in small to medium, like that, that can be it. But thinking back on those coaching days, it was at best, you're going to create a small pocket of change. And at best, you're going to try to make life better for these people. And then oftentimes, because I remember these stories, right? Like they see how good life is. And I'm, I'm a victim of that as well. Like I saw, hey, I don't want to just be a backlog manager during my days of, of product ownership. I wanted to do more. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I just got really frustrated with the job and I quit. Uh, so I don't know if that's necessarily making life better, um, by help exposing people to the way it could be, but then forcing them to work, um, non, eh, I I don't know if optimally is the right word there, but I mean, if you, if you help somebody discover where they, their career can go and it's not with the current organization, but it's the best thing for them as a person to provide the most value to society. I think that's a great thing. Like, so I, I don't know. I just hope that as we're going through and doing different things, with different organizations, even if they regress, that we made enough differences with people that were, we were working with that they found better ways of working. And when I look at people that we worked with, especially, you know, Jeff, when we were at Centair and you look what they're doing now, I think they're doing great things and they're helping other people. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a positive indicator that we made a difference at one point in our careers with people. From your perspective as a Scrum Master, does it add more value to you that you've helped change or catalyze change in an organization or that you've made a positive impact on someone's life or personal lives? Hmm. Good question. I mean, I think it, it, it starts with the individual and you hope if you add up, stack enough of those up that it, it helps an organization too, right? Like it's really, a, you're trying to do it all, but... I think the thing that's most satisfying is the individual, personally. I don't know. What would you say, Jeff? Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think it's the, the the personal aspect. Like, improving the workplace is secondary to improving the individual in their life. Agreed. Yeah, same for me. So, I, I kind of launched this in a, in a little bit left field, but, like, going back to the original topic, Sunder, I, you know, since I had to be put on the spot, what, uh, what, what are your thoughts on some failures that you've done as coaching? Oh, I've had so many. Um, the, the, the one that I think impacted me the most and, and made me go into an introspection mode was that I assumed self-managing capabilities within a team where mm-hmm. I f- figured, Hey, you guys are all grown up. You're, you're super intelligent. You can do this. Well, they actually needed way more guidance than I was providing them. And when they pushed back on me, I was like, you can do this. But they were actively asking me for help. And I was sort of keeping off and put them at bay a bit. I kept them at bay because I figured from my perspective, you are able to do this. And they were just literally asking me for help. And I didn't provide them the help they needed. So that was a was a was a painful lesson. Mm hmm. I think for me, one that I struggled with, especially early on, was knowing what stance to use when. Like, I, I kind of got thrown into it when <laughs> when I first started. It's like, here, here's 20 teams. You need to teach them Kanban and Scrum and go. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, so I just, they got through some training and now they need your help to implement it. 
And um, I think, I don't know, my strategy early on was I didn't know when to be a teacher, when to be a mentor, when to be a coach, like when it actually is, you know, more like a professional coaching stance. I probably leveraged that one way too much and tried to have them figure things out. I probably pissed a lot of people off because they're just, (laughs) tell me what to fucking do, you know, like, I don't know. And I'm like, you know, I had the answer, but I wanted them to help figure it out, you know, in their journey of self-discovery. So I think just like the Agile Manifesto says, you know, we discover better ways by doing it. And I had to do that. And I hope that, you know, I figured it out fast enough, or I think I did. And some teams, you know, got a lot of value out of it. Some didn't. But that's probably because, you know, I wasn't as good as I, you know, grew to be. So I think that's all a part of our journeys too, right? Like every scrum master is going to have teams that it doesn't work with, you know, what worked over here isn't going to work over there. And until you find better ways, you, you just, it might be very frustrating for you. You know, like you don't quite get why, why it's not working. It is. What about, cause you mentioned teaching as well. So what, at what point do you take one of those teaching stances? Um, as a professional scrum trainer, what has been your biggest mistake or learning pointless but like that um like in the classroom yeah um i don't know i don't know if this is a mistake i'll tell a story so when i first got into teaching i didn't want to teach like i was i told him like i'll do this agile coaching thing but uh, I'm not teaching these classes. And they're like, oh, you're teaching these classes. And I'm like, you just don't know yet. <laughs> and so they, they tricked me into it. So I, I, uh, they brought me along and I taught a Coke talk at a class. You know, it was fine. Module here or there. And ping pong some stuff. And there was a few later. All of a sudden, they're just like, yeah, I got stuff to do. Um, I'm going to sit in the back. I got to check these emails and deal with this emergency that's going on. You got this today. And I'm like, What? And I had to teach a class. And it was just the first time I've ever seen it. But I teach taught other classes. This is a new class. I just had to do it. And um, I'm sure it was rough. I know it was rough. Um, but it, but I learned a lot from doing it. And I asked for a little grace from the class um, for the situation. And I think they understood. And uh, I think I had people come up to me, you know, years later that said, you know, like, it wasn't a great class that first one that you did on your own. But now I came to your second class. And holy cow, like, this was amazing. Like, and so I don't know. I think that, again, back to like everybody's growing and as long as you're hungry to grow and you and you take feedback and you try to improve on it, I I just, you know, give yourself some grace that you're not going to do it perfect and you're going to have to, you have to go through it. Like the only way through something that kind of sucks is to just to do it. I think, I know you just got to, just kind of move forward through it. How did it make you feel? That's a bit of a touchy-feely uh, question, but <laughs> how uncomfortable was that at that point? Oh, at the moment, I was freaking out. Like, I was panicking or whatever else. After I got done, though, I, like, I felt really good. Like, I did that. I didn't think I could. And I did. So then nice. I felt a whole nother, you know, new level of confidence. Cool. Thanks for the honesty. Yeah. It's very challenging. What about you, Maneski? Re- restate the question. <laughs> what are your failures for in the classroom? Like, what are one of your greatest failures in the classroom teaching? I think one of the, the first times I did it was I, I have a, well, one, I cuss a lot. And so to, to a certain degree, I don't care. But also I try and test the waters a little bit with that when I'm in a class. Because, again, like language can really turn some people off. And, I, and I, I, I am aware of that. And it really, when I teach a class, my goal is that they, first and foremost, walk away with valuable learning. Like that's the, that's the point of the class. Secondly, I want them to have a good time when they're in the class. So like I have a tendency to, to cuss a, a, a lot. We've already established that. And by and large, people like find that comforting. There's a certain level of cussing that people actually do. And they've, they've done research on this that, that finds it co- uh, comforting um, or more relatable, like blue collar, if you will. Um, but then there's a there's another aspect of I oftentimes just say crazy shit to try to get people to to laugh, right? Like, there you go, boobles, you know, you just articulate something funny and somebody will yeah. chuckle a little bit. And when you have an emotional response to something, um, you tend to retain that information better. Like, um, again, they've done some studies on it. Sure. And so for me, like, I, I, I can't remember exactly what I said, uh, but it wasn't exactly appropriate. Uh, but I was saying it to like... <laughs> 
because when I teach a class, it's it's half teacher, half comedian. Like I try and crack jokes so that people are entertained. They're having a good time. Um, but for for me, it's just learning, learning that uh, that balance between the two. Um, it's almost like, man, it's a terrible fucking analogy. But if you think of Donald Trump, like you can love or hate that guy. But you really should appreciate or like at least acknowledge the fact that that dude is kind of funny. Like he just says really <laughs> weird shit sometimes where it's just like, yeah, yeah, he's he's kind of funny. Um, he can be a complete asshole. Like I fucking hate that man to death. But like I think he's funny. Um, and so just like being able to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. So anyway, that was, a, that was Sunder, sorry, a really long winded way of saying oh. one of the big th- things that I needed to learn was and, and maybe this is a better way of articulating is learn to read the room better. Um, learn to understand what people are comfortable with and what people are not comfortable with and adjust accordingly. I don't think I was like, I don't have a dreadful tale to tell about that, uh, but I know I wasn't good at that at the beginning of teaching. And that was something that I really had to, to uh, uh, master. And I think I've done a really good job with it. I think when I get a review of my class, it's because it has it something to the degree of like, he was really entertaining, right? Um, and that's what I want. I want people to be entertained. It's not good enough that, yep, you're learning some really great stuff, but you should be entertained the whole time. Like, I want you smiling. I want you walking away with a little bit extra sunshine, uh, it, you know, exactly. put on you. Well, you indeed, you know, ex- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to push, push the question back at you. What was, uh, what, what's your greatest failure in the classroom? Uh, also reading the room, but setting the dynamics now to work with, um, uh, Setting up a class room itself. The, the first time I ever taught a class was, and I'm going to swear here, I was teaching safe. I'm sorry. Sorry. I'll never do it again. I was teaching safe, but we had this, um, we were doing this at, at this hotel and they put it, the whole setup in a boardroom way and they bolted it to the floor. So there was no way for actual engagement. People were stuck in their seats. They couldn't really get up because the walls were uh, basically behind their backs and it was so boring and that made my position as a trainer even worse because i couldn't work with the dynamics and then i already felt bad about that i took a picture and put it on linkedin and then james james Kaplan came in the first comment ah, death room ah yeah fuck this i'll never do this again but that is a it was a horrible experience in that sense but it made me better as a trainer because I know now what not to do. And I think that drawing that parallel to uh, Maleski and to uh, uh, Donald Trump, you have improved because you have an introspection level. Donald Trump just continues down the same rabbit hole and keeps fucking shit up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go left field if we keep going down there. <laughs> but uh... I'll go with another training failure. So similar to yours. <laughs> so now I'll get us back on topic. Uh, it was one of my first classes, too, and uh, the person who was supposed to teach it uh, got sick. And then me and another trainer that were both brand new, both weren't scrummed out our trainers. We were, like, early in our careers. Had to train this, this course that got sold as a hybrid Kanban scrum class. Never been brought, built before or delivered before by anybody in our practice. And, um, and it was kind of just, you know, just do that part, this part, and flow together. And we had never seen all the stuff. So we just were like, okay, we got to do it. And so we just got there super early that morning, got to the room, and it was a lecture hall. But a lecture hall that sold like 200, maybe 250 people. And it was all like, you know, stadium seating up and around you. Oh, wow. And you couldn't move anything. Everything's bolted down. And we have to be like in the front here. And we have like these mics. And we have to stand behind the podiums. And it's like, I don't, it was horrible, like set up. Anyway, that was, that was, we made it work, but um, the room made it awful. We weren't quite prepared. And something was sold that probably wasn't the best thing. It was like, oh, these managers need to know these things. Just give them all these learning outcomes. And, um, and don't take the time to actually like go through the activities. Just, just teach them what they need to know. Like just go through these things. And so I think like we weren't really set up for success, you know, in the room and the expectations, uh, and even the content we were trying to teach, you know, like it, it, there's a better way. Um, yeah. And that's one too. Like, so it's like, I don't know, make sure you, you believe in what you're teaching, make sure you have the right facilities, rooms, uh, the way that you facilitate makes a difference in the delivery, like we're talking about. So I think those are very crucial things. 
I hear quite some painful stories here, and, but I also feel that these are still impacting the way that you deliver courses at this moment. So even though they've been super painful, they have been incredibly useful. Absolutely. You know, not that it'll even come close to something like that now, because like you oh. hear the you know, red flags, you know, like, hell no, I'm not doing that, you know? No. So, exactly. yeah, if so I walk definitely into a room, made, made an impact. If I walk into a room and I see the tables in a U shape, uh, nope, nope, not this again. It's I yeah I'm a, I know Jeff you you've you've gone back to in person but Sundar have you gone back to in person training or are you still doing virtual training? No, I think the only virtual courses that I've delivered this year was because they're U.S. based in company course, um, and that was the only reason. Other than that, only in person. Okay. Yeah, I've I've only done virtual now for ever since the pandemic started. So it's like so much of this stuff I don't even have to really even worry about. Um, not not to say like virtual has its own um, limitations and, and hurdles. What, what were you gonna say, Jeff? Well, I mean, virtual does right. Like, um, you know, early on in the pandemic, we definitely did tech checks, made sure people had video and things like that worked. And now we're like, well, that's just you know status quo. Like everybody's got to be able to turn their video on and have a mic that they can use, right, and be able to share their screen if they need to and use a collaborative whiteboard. Like who hasn't done that now in the last few years? Um, but every once in a while you run into somebody where they've got a VDI issue or something happens and then they can't do it. And i just, they don't have the same experience as others do. So I think that those are similar. They're similar things. It'd be really weird to be walking into a classroom and, uh, you couldn't see people's faces. Just think about what that would be like in the, in the, in the physical world. It'd be like, uh, everyone came in with like a ski mask on or, or a bag over their head. Like it'd be just odd, you know? And uh, we seem to be okay with it, I guess, in the virtual world. So I guess nudge out there to, to people. I, I had some clients recently, actually it was this week, and, and um, we've been working with them for a while. And I saw their faces for the first time, some of the people on the teams, because we got them to finally turn their cameras after multiple, multiple nudges. And it was awesome. Like to see a smiling face on the other side of it, it's just like, I don't know. It makes a huge difference in the collaboration, the energy in the room, how we get things done. So it's, I don't know. I don't want it to mandate it, but I think you can be the change you want to see inside organizations. So if anyone's out there like thinking, should I turn my camera on, do it and be the odd nut for a while. And hopefully other people start following you because it'll change your interactions day to day for sure. How does, how does it impact your, your work as a scrum master that people have their camera turned off? Because for, for me, I read people's energy. I go off on people's energy and then I can, you know, reading the room and coming back to Mineski. That's not not just in courses, but just as well um, in, in working environments in general, even if it's virtual. You know, if people are having a shit day, it's really easy to hide just by putting your camera off. In person, that's a whole lot more difficult. Or if people run off, they, they close the lids and they run downstairs crying. You can't see that in a virtual world. You can in a physical one. But for me, my life as a Scrum Master has been a lot more difficult in a virtual world. What do you think, Jeff? No oh, man, I haven't. You look like... No, I was looking at you because you're you're the oh. you're the professional scrum master there, not me. Oh, I mean, I think it's it's huge, right? Like I uh, I gain a lot of energy from the video and, and the face. Like um, I always give feedback. There's usually one or two people in every course or workshop that I'm doing, and they give you that smiling, fi- you know, like that feedback, that ver- that nonverbal feedback that they're understanding what you're saying or not understanding what you're saying that um, they like what you're saying, the nods, the uh, just the expressions on their face. And I just focus on those couple people if I have them in the room. And everyone else, if they have the camera off, I just try to forget they're there for, for a little bit because that's what gives me energy. If everybody has their camera off, which I've had those experiences, it sucks. Like it drains you. I can only give so much. It's like I'm putting in but not getting anything back. And if I don't get anything back, eventually I'm going to be drained too. And I know I'm not hitting the market sometimes, but I have no indicator. So it's like I can only do what I can do when you're not give when you're not participating at the same level that I, you know, that's required really for a good experience. So I I put it a little bit on the people that don't won't turn their cameras on. And I mean, there's so many options now. Like blur your background, show me whatever. Like I don't care if your kids are there, if you got pets. I'd like I love it. Like show me who you are. Like we talked about last uh, the last episode. Like. Bring your whole self to work. I think it's an amazing thing. 
anytime I see a kid pop on a camera or a pet pop on a camera, the whole entire mood changes. Everybody in the room is smiling and laughing and it goes from anything serious to like, hey, like we're all people here, right? And um, and, and you you just connect at a different level. So I don't know. I just think it's it's invaluable. There's a reason why they put face-to-face communication inside the Agile Manifesto, like as a principal back in the, you know, 2001 timeframe, because they didn't have good video conferencing. If they had what they had now, they would say like video on, I think, uh, is required. I think that's what it would be. Because uh, we, we've proven it can work with video on. It's just without it, it becomes very difficult. It's an interesting point that you bring up about the kids, because last time, uh, Malaski, you mentioned that, yeah, that you're allergic to kids. But how <laughs> does this, how does it work with you when when you are on on a call and kids start walk walking through the screen? Dude, Do your sweet. eyes get red? Do you get rash? How does this work? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, so I love other people's kids. I just don't think I would. Well, that even that doesn't sound right. Like if I was in that situation, okay, I would love my own kids. All right, let's be clear. Like I'm not that much of a, a, a devil. Um, I just like the renting model of kids. I think it works really well. Um, but I've had, uh, in, even I'm a big one on, on standards and expectations. Like set, set set your expectations up front and hold people accountable to standards. When I'm am teaching a class, we'll we'll go through and we'll list things out like Vegas rules, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So anything that happens in this classroom, we should feel uh, comfortable sharing the good, the bad, the ugly with each other, right? And we're not going to judge each other. Um, but one of the other ones is real life comes first. Um, when I first started doing the virtual classes, there was some dude who had like, uh, I again, like, Kid days, I don't know when they come home from the the uh, hospital generally, but it was like uh, a week and a half old infant son that, that he had. And like literally half the damn time, he had this little kid in his arms and he was, you know, taking the course with. And he, that was just his wife was working. He was taking the course. Uh, and so he, he was um, stuck on dad duty. And like that was fine. Um, and then like a week or two later, and I was telling this this the story to, to the to the class and um Another dad was there uh, and he had an infant. It was a little bit older, but I, I would say like less than one year old or something like that. And, at, and I shit you not, at one point during the training, he's sitting there with this this little kiddo doing like overhead tricep extensions, <laughs> holding the kid by the legs. Like that that was his thing that he would do every once in a while. And it was just comedic. Every time he'd start doing it, the class would chuckle a little bit. And like... Cool. To Jeff's point, like, we're all human beings. He's not disrupting the flow of the class. That's fine. Like, doesn't bother me at all. In fact, to echo Jeff's sentiments, like, that's awesome. All right. Life comes first. You got your family there with them. You don't have to pretend like they're not there. Um, the, the flip side of that, though, and I, I think it's interesting. I think it's the World Health Organization recently put out this, like, I forget the way they phrase it. I don't necessarily agree with it wholeheartedly, but it was like, it is a human rights violation to make somebody turn their camera on in, in their home when they're doing their remote work. So, oh, Jeff, you see, he had a knee-jerk reaction I to just, that. I just, uh. <laughs> But I understand that because it's what it's saying is you have a human right to privacy, okay? You have a human right to not have to show off your working environment. Now, I know where you're immediately going to go, Jeff, but like, okay, yes, you can blur your background. And this, I still don't understand why Zoom... Uh, meet whatever the the the, the other uh, applications are out there. Why don't they have like live emoji versions of your face? Like that technology is out there. Why wouldn't they at least do that? That at least gives you one level of security between. Okay, they can actually see my face. They can see my environment that I'm in. Maybe that's a, a privacy issue for you. But at least you still get the the responsiveness. You can tell when somebody's looking at you versus somewhere away, frowning, smiling, whatever that happens to be. Like we have that technology. It's right on your iPhone. We see it all the time. Why is that not integrated into our uh, web conferencing software? Anyway, sorry, w- went a little bit out there. But like, no, I'm not definitely allergic to kids. But I, I, I do agree. Like, this is this is just part of life. Like, embrace that. Bring that in with you. It's it's part of, again, like we were talking about before, bringing your whole self to work. Like, I expect that you have significant others in your life. If I see a significant other walking around, walking past on camera, cool. As long as they're clothed, that like, no, no big issue, right? Um, so... I don't know. I think people just make a bigger deal out of it than it is, but that's just a personal opinion. 
Yeah, I mean, about it being a human right thing, I guess let's just play play it out from an organization standpoint. If video's not on and people don't collaborate and they don't feel the connection to people, what is an organization to do? They're just going to mandate everybody to come back. Like, that's what they're going to do. And so do we all want to have to go back to work and be physical and take that hour commute everywhere? You know, every single person do that? Or can we just turn our cameras on? And like, at least for some of the time, this is going to work really well for many of our communications. I mean, it's a lot more work on everybody. It's a it's a stress on the environment. Think about the plane tickets to get everybody somewhere for these courses that we were doing. Like, we can avoid a lot of things and have, provide the same type of value to people and not hurt the environment at the same time. I think it's a win-win. So I don't know. Like, I just think we got to think big picture. We got to think about what's best for the whole. Um, and if you're really not okay with it, then I guess there's there's in-person options. But like, that that would be where I would go. Like, it's... Turning your camera off isn't a good option. So I guess my, my point being is I'm not disagreeing that it's not a, like, ideally, I would love it if everybody did, but it's not like we didn't have conference calls before the pandemic, right? It's not like we weren't able to hold conversations with people when we couldn't see their face. Like, we have those all the time in, in business. But we didn't do them all day where we couldn't see their face. And all week and all month, and there's a lot of people up there that, it, I mean, literally, there was a person I was working with and they're like, I haven't seen these people since the pandemic started. They've not turned their camera on once since 2019. Like that's a long time to not turn your camera on and see somebody and you work with them every day. How do you feel about the, putting this in the light of self-management? Like if this would be a team that is completely fine with the entire team, not putting their cameras on. I guess that's, that's kind of where I'm going with this. Like, if, if it's not impacting your ability to get shit done, like, okay, cool, do it. Don't turn your camera on. I mean, just because I would prefer that you do it doesn't mean I'm right or I should be able to Are we optimizing for that person or the team? Who are we optimizing for? Either. It depends. I mean, I think, I think we know what happens here in the Midwest. We don't like conflicts. So we'll just ignore it, even though it's more painful. And so I think that's just, and then what happens is a company gets frustrated. They keep hearing about it from back channels and then it becomes a policy and then everybody loses that. Well, so I just think that. But back, like, back to Sunder's point, happen. like if the team has decided this is genuine, like they, they all get together, they say, you know what, cameras, we don't need them. Like we don't really, we don't whiteboard that much. We don't see each other that much. We're really just talking through what piece is being worked on by what person. Like, yeah. so what? Yeah, exactly. Because when just when the pandemic hit, I was working for this super high tech organization, Star Wars Technology, and those people were the biggest club of introverted people that I've ever seen. You know, they were like, everyone needs to work from home. Fucking sweet. I won't have to see anyone ever again. Nice. Then who am I to judge them for that? Yeah. I just think that, uh, <laughs> and, and maybe that's okay. I would fit in that culture, I guess. You know, like I need Same. to see people. Yeah. Same, but uh, yeah, if, if I'm the only one in the team who wants other people to put their camera on, I mean, the the whole recording of this podcast would be way less fun and engaging if you guys had your cameras off and I'm the only one here with my stupid face on on screen. Yeah, so let yeah. let me let me clarify. I am not necessarily disagreeing with you, Jeff. I am disagreeing with the need to mandate it. Um yeah. I don't think you should impose your perspective onto somebody else in the form that takes away their right. So it's taking away their right to turn the camera off. That's the piece that I'm not, that I, that I would be opposed to. So. Sure. I can, I can get behind that. I don't like anybody taking away that self-management. Um, even when it might be a little painful for a while for some of the people, you know, but, uh, cause then what else do you take? It's a slippery slope. So I, I get, I get where you're going there. Right. And, and then because I think another extreme to this is what we've been talking about. But like, OK, so should I not be upset if the company installs monitoring software on my computer to make sure that I'm not idle for more than five minutes at a time or something to that degree? Right. Like where where all of a sudden does that line become tolerable and not tolerable? Mm -hmm. Right. I get it. Yep. It's, you know, one of those. uh those lines we got to balance. Right. And, um, I think it's okay. I think if you're right, like we shouldn't mandate it. I think as, uh, we should be, have the courage to talk about it as team members and the effects that it has. 
Um, is, you know, inside organizations, I, I just think that maybe it's not talked about enough. But if you find value in it, maybe bring it up. Like uh, that would be a nudge. I think it will change your collaboration if you have video on. Yeah, that was uh, my my follow up point on this. It was it was talking about this with Yessa Howing today on the PSPO class that we were teaching. How many organizations have you experienced that have actively discussed or scrum masters in this pandemic, in this situation, throughout the entire thing on how to collaborate, how to improve collaboration post pandemic as well? Not just, you know, in the beginning it was this hype and people needed to work with it because you were continuously Mm -hmm. confronted with it. But going down the line, how did you experience this? You know, I don't know that there's too many that just like bring that up as a total, like this is the topic. It comes up maybe secondarily and other things are trying to solve, but, um, you know, it's probably a good, a good, just retro question there. Like, Hey, we're still doing virtual. How do we improve our virtual collaboration? Or, Hey, we might be going to hybrid soon. What would we do there? That'd be different. You know, um, those are, those are great questions to ask and, and work through as a team and I, and probably don't do it frequently enough, you know, are you, oh, the same. Sundar, are you, are you asking? Cause you're still seeing that where like teams are still struggling with collaboration tools or was that brought up in your PSPO course? No, it was just a discussion that I was having with, uh, with Yasa. Um, I'm in the luxury position or sort of the luxury, depending on how you look at it. We fly to different locations on the assignment that we're working on. We're working now for Sky Media, a big broadcasting company uh, over here. And we go to London, to Munich, to Milan, uh, back and forth. Um, so we, we're not really struggling with those challenges because we meet people as well as that we have the hybrid the hybrid thing going on. But for instance, my the teams that I'm working with in Latin America, they, they all have their cameras turned off. They're not sitting in the same location, but they also mm-hmm. refuse to do anything about it or to discuss it. While I as a Scrum Master, or not necessarily as a Scrum Master, but more as an organizational coach, see so many points to be improved that they're just reluctant to touch upon. So it really depends on what kind of area, what kind of assignment, what kind of questions. Uh, but I was really curious about your perspective on this. So I, I'd be sorry, because you, you just made me think of another question. I want to turn it around back at you. When you're seeing an organization that is resistant to any type of change, so whether it's change of turning on the cameras, it's the change of feeling open to just being able to discuss issues, whatever that may be. Like, what is what is your approach to highlighting that issue? Like, hey, guys, you want to be a great organization, but you, you can't even come to do little changes. Like, what's how are you thinking you're going to get to whatever it is you want to be when you grow up as a company? Um, I did that recently where, you know, if you fuck something up, they'll point you to this is what you're supposed to do and this is what you're not doing. I do the same thing back. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is what you guys want me to do. This is what I need to do that. But you're doing exactly the opposite. So if you want me to do my job properly and you're paying me a shit ton of money to do my job, please walk with me through this. If you don't want to change, sure, fine. That's by you. But then I'll give you back the assignment. What about you, Boobles? Um, you know, I think that there's three types of people when you go into organizations. There's the resistors, the people on the fence, and then there's the people that are going to, like, they're, they're, they're just longing for change. And um, I try to listen. I try to build some rapport when I start an engagement. I try to find those people that are really hungry for the change and put them in a group and try to um, and show the benefit. When you do that, if you can do that, usually the people on the fence want to join. And then the people that are the detractors, like usually they either come to the fence or they decide, yeah, I just don't want to be a part of that. Or I don't know. Usually they they work themselves out somehow. Um, And so I guess that's what I try to do. And sometimes like, you know, it's not even the teams. I I rarely find the teams don't want to improve. I think most people want to do they, they want to wake up in the morning and they want to provide value. They want what they do every single day to matter. I don't think people come up and say, I just want to go to work, twiddle my thumbs for eight hours and like go home and not provide any value. Like I want to waste my life away for the next 40 years. I don't think people say that or think that. Um, I think they want to do good things. Now, 
if they do, if they feel like they can't or there's something in their way, those are things that we can talk about and get empowered. But they have to trust you to to tell you those things. And um, I think you have to be able to show them that you're there to help. You got to show them some quick wins and that you're not there to like be the bobs. Because I think sometimes that's what people think when I walk in with Chad is like we're the bobs from Office Space or what is it you actually do here? And you know we're we're I don't know. They might think that initially. Like I, um, hopefully you know by the things we do around the community and things like that. And people see us on the podcast or, you know, talking at meetups or conferences that we're at, like they know that our intentions are, you know, good. And we're just trying to help organizations and the people inside of them. But, um, you know, that's, that is a a persona out there for people coming in from a consultant standpoint. And so you got to be aware of that. Like that's how people might see you. So um, I think that it's just about finding the right people to get started carve out a very a small enough niche where you can make a difference and then just show the results and be open and be curious. And, you know, change doesn't happen really fast if people aren't ready for it. Like it takes time. And I know everyone wants the results now. It's like everything. We're just like an instant gratification culture, but like it, it takes time. It just does. And so I think you got to be patient with it. Yeah. And to that extent, I want to nuance my uh, very black and white answer. Uh, just before, because this the way that you describe it, Bubbles, is the way that I, I feel that Scrum Masters and Agile coaches or whatever kind of coach that you are should go with open curiosity, with 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 an open mindset, curiosity, empathy, um, mm-hmm. ask these questions on what's going on. And uh, ultimately, again, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You don't want to continue just for the hell of it and for making money until you're about to retire and you spent 40 hours or 40 years on nothing. Uh, what about you, Maleski? I am grateful that I don't really have to worry about that question anymore. Um, like th- there's, there's a reason I kind of hung up my hat with the whole agile consulting thing or organizational change engine or whatever you want to call it. Like I just got tired of trying to convince people that there were better ways of doing things. And I just wanted to get myself into positions where I can mandate the better ways of doing things without like, I forget who articulated this to to me because um, I certainly didn't come up with it. But you, you essentially have two different um, powers in organizations. You have the, the organizational power. That is the, the power that the organization gives you as a manager, director, whatever. Right. So there's organizational power and then there's relationship power. Uh, the the ability to influence change without direct authority, right? So basically, when you're trying to enact change, you're, you're, you those are the two levers in essence that you're trying to pull on. Um, and just personally, like the influencing without authority is probably the better lever to pull. Like long term, you've got a you know the whole ad car model. I, I think is great for understanding uh, the the desire to change, what needs to change, all that jazz. Um, but oftentimes that is uh, influential. You're trying to win somebody over and helping them understand why this change is going to be better versus I'm your boss. I can fire you. You're going to change in this way or, or just maybe even not not to that level, but just being in a position where I can directly influence things without needing to necessarily win people over. Um, I sound like a jackass and that's OK, but I'll, I'll just be honest about it. Like, I just don't want to have to spend weeks, months, years trying to show people the right way and win them over when I could just say, just do it this way and you will see the results in a few weeks and then we can go on. Like, again, in my head, it's cost of delay again and again. Like, what is what is what is the, the, the cost of this organization by me taking a very long, slow, steady approach to getting this change out there versus just mandating the change? Um, and if people don't want to go along with it, cool, they can self-select out. Yeah. I think to me that's one of the most frustrating parts as well. That whole reluctance to change, and everyone needs to have their opinion and have their opinion heard all the time. And it takes so long for actual change to happen. I hate that part. I never said that. You you look like you want to chime in with something, Boobles. Well, yeah. I mean, it does. But also, whenever there's a good emergency, we can change pretty fast, can't we? Like, oh, yeah. we are a pretty responsive species when we need to be. And um, and so I'm, I'm not saying manufacture that, but if you really want to be in an in a organization where they change fast and everyone's on the same page, like, go work at a startup. Like, I don't know, Jeff, you've done <laughs> that for sure. Like, 
I've been a part of some consulting recently and like when shit needs to happen, like there isn't like weeks to months, there's days to hours to get shit done. Like, and we got to make things happen or we don't get paid this week. <laughs> like that's like everybody's in the same boat and we all have families and we all have to do this, you know, like, and we all know that there's upside if we can make this thing work uh, long term, but like we got to do it together, you know? And I think, I don't know, there's just as stressful as that can be at times. It's like some of the best times too, right? When you're going through something hard with a group of people and then you like get to the other side of it. I mean, I think you look at the, look back at that journey and maybe it's just over time, the nostalgia of it. But like you look back at that and, and at least I do and the memories I have of going of doing it where it's like I'm proud of those days. Like that was really fun. I really enjoyed those people and the time it sucked. Like, like you felt you're going to wake up and cry in the middle of the night because it's like you're worried about stuff. You get that pit in your stomach and you're like, what am I doing here? And uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I got to go down and start working on something because what else can I do? Um, those are, it's tough in the moment, but I think that those also like, man, when you get something done and you feel like you work so hard for it, it's, it's really rewarding. So I said, I feel like I'm being extra cynical this episode, but the the one thing I want to not even push back on, but like the, the consideration in there is I, I have been in the trenches. I've at, like, I agree. Like I've had that feeling before, but I guess my point is if you can get to the same outcome without all of that misery, like wouldn't you, wouldn't you choose to get to the outcome without all that misery? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, we all want pleasure, but I think it takes hard work to get to that. You know, like that's where our minds go. I think that the level of satisfaction is different as well. If, if you have really have to work for it and you have the same result, then the, the, the level of gratitude and, and satisfaction is different than when you would just snap your finger like that. And I was in the whole wor- world would change. It would have been differently. It would work different on people's motivation. And and let me let me detail a little bit more here. And I, I promise I won't go down into the weeds. But it's more about like I've seen this rodeo before. I've seen this issue before. I know what the solution is. So and probably because I've gone through the trenches, I've done that with right, like exactly what you're saying. So I guess my point is, why would I want to keep reliving that nightmare? to get to the outcome when I've like, I've lived the nightmare once. I know what a good solution is going to be or something that's more ideal. Like, let's just do that and then go on with our lives. That's, that's kind of, that's more the, the, the what I'm trying to get after. But yeah, I playing devil's advocate. I'm robbing those other individuals of living that nightmare and potentially yes. coming to the solution themselves. So maybe we've come full circle <laughs> and understood like where I have failed as a coach and not understanding and meeting people where they're at. Maybe I'm still doing that and, and not necessarily appreciating the benefits of people going through uh, the experience for themselves. And I bet somebody who does have to go through that nightmare scenario, it's it's more ingrained into them versus me giving them the, the solution at the end of it. So who knows? Maybe I just talked myself out of it here. I think it's beautiful that you want to share your nightmare with others. <laughs> Yeah, no, I but think, it, you know, those... Oh, go ahead, Sander. Oh, that's the last thing, and then it'll shut up, which is a challenge in and by itself for me. Uh, but that comes back to what you were saying about people can change really fast if they want to, and that's... Just look at pre-pandemic, when organizations said, well, you're never going to be able to work from home full-time because you just can't. Pandemic hit, ta-da, magic. People can work from home. Oh, shit, we really can. Yep. Yeah, it's it's amazing what can happen when you you have an emergency and you know you just have to do it. I yeah. so I yeah, agree whole, wholeheartedly with that one. And in fact, I think Boobles and I, if we went back and looked at some of our earlier recordings, like I'll, I'll at least speak for myself, I was dead set against remote work. I was like, this is bullshit. You're never going to be as productive as a team when you've got remote people. Now, in my defense, I think it was because the majority of those teams, and maybe even all of them, were hybrid. And I still think there is dysfunction with hybrid that we haven't quite sorted out. But like if your entire team is remote or your entire team is there in person, um, I I think they can be just as uh, effective as a team now. And I totally eat crow on and having bad things to say about remote work earlier. We didn't know. We didn't know. Right. We weren't we had never experienced it. So like we could only judge from what we had seen in the past. And we'd seen the past was a lot of hybrid. And uh, that didn't work so well. So 
um, yeah, I think you're right. You know, like now we've seen it, we've proven it. Like sometimes you just got to run the experiment, you know, like I guess that's good advice. And the outcomes of running the experiment are different too. I think, you know, when you're trying to do change in an organization, you have to let go that there's a deterministic pact. Like if I do these things, these other things will happen. They won't. There is a probabilistic path. There's, you can add a pro- high probability that certain things will happen if we do these things, but there's other influences out there that may make them go the other direction. So like to your point before, Jeff, like I've seen this nightmare. Yeah. And maybe 80% of the time the solution you have works, but maybe we're in that 20% right now. I don't know. And so we kind of just got to go through it and maybe we'll run into the next nightmare. Maybe we can, you know, we'll take the 80% odds and we'll get to, and it'll just lead into the next nightmare if it really is a 20%, but we could be 80% in a good dream period pretty soon. So I don't know. I just think that some people just have to experience it and they need the, the, they need the experience of going through it. Until you do it, you just, you don't know what you don't know, you know? Coming back on um, the original topic before we went to take a walk in the jungle, <laughs> what's your biggest failure when it comes to hybrid work or virtual work? Forgetting about people. It's got to be that. Like I'm there in person and I forget someone or... um. You know, you just don't plan for it. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, those people are there. And you just lose sight because it's like you're in the moment. You're having this interaction. You're right here. And they're like, oh, yeah, that person's right there over there on that speaker. <laughs> and we haven't even yeah. talked or brought them into the conversation at all. It's it's something I had to remind myself about all the time when we're doing hybrid. It, I don't know. How about you guys? What's, what's some of your failures with hybrid? You go ahead, Sunder. All right. So I'm an avid Call of Duty player, right? And um, that's a video. There game, was an yeah. hour. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it, it, it's fucking amazing. Next one is about to be released, and I'm already hyped like a 13 year old. Anyway, I was uh, there was a gap in my agenda. I was like, figure, fuck it, let's go and play play a game. And I was on a roll, and I saw this. I saw on my phone these uh, notifications popping up. Yeah, I have a meeting in a minute. Like, yeah, 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 in a minute. And I continued because I was on a winning streak. Like, ah. I'm 25 minutes late to a very important meeting because I wanted to win my game. It's like, maybe I should not do this ever again. So the, the balance between the way that you can set up your, your private life versus, versus work life has become, for me, it has become better, but it took me a couple of lessons to get there. This one was very, um, not the most professional one. That's okay. I've got a good, uh, not professional uh, story that I'll share with you when we're offline here. But uh, um, uh-huh. yeah, it'll be fun. You'll get a chuckle out of it. But um, one of the I want the listeners to chuckle out about it as well. No, no, it's 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 not a good like <laughs> podcasting story. But any, anyway, anyway, um, g- going back to a little bit more of the tactical side with hybrid. Uh, there's there's one specific team that I was thinking about, and t- to me, it was more of a a, a tooling issue. But it was just the the frustration of when we're having team meetings, it's like the the sound. So is everybody at their computer with their headphones on and their mic, which mm-hmm. is then like if you're in the room, you're catching that audio coming through on other people's mics in the room. And so on, on the, the actual call, you know, it's, it's a little bit frustrating. But then also to your point, Jeff, it's also really hard to come up with good facilitation that isn't a hybrid facilitation. You're either using something like Miro, Mural, Jamboard, or something like that. Um, so to compensate for the remote people, but then to the people that are in the room, it's like, well, why are you even in the room? You're all sitting at your computer on the, the Jamboard. You might as well all be at home, right? So that yep. that's, and, and that's just a personal limitation for hybrid that, and that's why I say like, I that was never a nut that I, I necessarily cared to crack because I wasn't, that was a very limited engagement and moving forward, all the teams were either uh, all on site or on remote. Um, that being said, I don't know if you guys watched the last uh, meta um, presentation. I Mm-mm. I find that incredibly interesting in, in a, a, a good conversation, not conversation. If you guys watched or listened to Joe Rogan experience, he had Mark Zuckerberg on there recently and he listened and I thought that was an incredibly fascinating conversation. 
um, to hear about the future of work. And essentially, that that really does solve a lot of these hybrid problems. Like you, you do have that, like the way we engage with each other, even sitting on the screen, like our, our listeners can't see it. And even when we edit this and put it on YouTube, but like I see me, Sunder and Jeff on my screen in that order. Right. And so when I'm looking at one of those individuals talking, I am looking at a different spot on my screen and it kind of looks goofy to somebody on the receiving end of that and just expand it out to the nine, you know, the zoom, um, uh, whatever it is, the nine square that you've typically got. It's just those little human elements that we were talking about earlier. And I think a lot of this stuff will will solve for, assuming he doesn't bankrupt Meta in the process over the next few years of trying to build this thing, giving avatars legs, which is like, what the fuck, really? Like That's where you're spending your money. But uh, anyway, sorry, lo- long-winded answer there, uh, Sunder, for I, it, just the tooling in a hybrid environment, I think, I think is still really lacking, or it's just a, I haven't solved for it yet, maybe others have. Yeah, I think it's it's getting there, though, right? Like, tooling's getting better and better. Um I'll tell you about one tool that I use right now. A few clients we've recommended it, and I think it works really well. I think it's semi-affordable. It's like $1,000. It's called an OWL. And you plug it into a conference room, and it has a camera 360 all the way around. And it focuses in on whoever talks. So then you see them. And then it focuses. And then, um, I mean, the mic's great on it. And then it sits right in the middle of the room. Uh, It's pretty portable. It's like only like, you know, what's nine inches, 10 inches tall, something like that, maybe. Um, and, and man, it works pretty well, I think, from a conferencing solution. So when you have that, at least in a conference room, at least everyone uh, you know that's at home can still see everybody in the room really easily. Because a lot of times those cameras don't work well, or you can't quite see everything. This is this is pretty nice, actually, from uh, from the different clients I've used it at. I so, haven't heard of that. I don't it's check a, that. Out. Yeah, it's not the same as VR, Jeff, but it's uh, it's something we have right now. That's you know, it's there that could help. Sure. Thank you for listening to The Agile Wire. We are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves. We would appreciate feedback at feedback at theagilewire.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Store. See you next time.